Well, can I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 51? And as you're turning there, let me tell you stories of two Christians. And I wonder if you can relate to either of them um, as you're turning to Psalm 51. First, we have Harry. Harry has been a Christian for five to ten years and knows his Bible pretty well. When it comes to the area of confession, Harry at least knows in his head that confession is important and a central part of the Christian life. He would confess the big things, like when he was particularly harsh to a work colleague or particularly selfish with his wife on a given day. But that's about it. And Harry would say that he doesn't say sorry to God on a regular basis or ask for forgiveness. And he says that deep in his heart, he, he almost feels that if, if he himself turns a bit of a blind eye to the ways that he has messed up, then God himself would almost turn a blind eye to the ways that he has messed up. And as a result, Harry would say that he knows he's been forgiven by Jesus, but it's a fairly matter-of-fact issue, and he wouldn't experience much joy in the Lord. And secondly, we have Mary. Mary is an older lady who's been a Christian for, for many years, uh, a very faithful church member, very actively involved in serving the church. But when it comes to the area of confession, sadly, Mary often feels very discouraged and, and weighed down because she knows just how unworthy she is before the Lord. And she feels there must always be some unconfessed sin or, or selfishness in her that she's unaware of and needs to bring before the Lord. For example, she might not have prayed as much as she wanted to, or loved her neighbors quite as well as she should have, or been as generous as she feels she should have been. And as a result, Mary often lives in a state of being, being weighed down by discouragement. She would love to, to feel the joy of, of knowing that she has been forgiven, but almost feels as though God has run out of grace for her because of the, the depth and, and frequency of her sin. I wonder if you can relate to, to either of those stories. And as we come to Psalm 51, we're going to see that this psalm brings a challenge and, and very good news to people like Harry and Mary. And this is part of our, our sermon series, A Praying People. And tonight, um, we're coming to a prayer of confession. Confession basically meaning to acknowledge before the Lord that that we are sinful. It literally means to agree with the Lord that we are in the wrong and need his forgiveness. And we'll see that confession doesn't come naturally to us. It cuts completely against our human nature. But Psalm 51 is, is well known, and it's, it's the case study in, in the Bible, if you like, of, of confession. And an amazing prayer with so much treasure teaching us about confession and pointing us to the Lord Jesus who the psalm is ultimately about when he bore our sins as, as he died on the cross. So I've got three questions that this psalm will help to teach us about confession. Firstly, why do we confess? Secondly, what happens when we confess? And thirdly, what are the results of, of confession? So that's the, the why, the what, and the so what of confession. If you like, you're very simple three-point sermons. Firstly, the why of confession. Why should we make a, a regular habit of confessing our sin before the Lord? 
Well, as Simon said, there's a title to Psalm 51 telling us it's written by, by David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, referring to the, the infamous story in 2 Samuel 11 when King David is walking on the rooftop, sees a beautiful woman bathing, inquires about her, and before long, he lies with her and she becomes pregnant. And in the next chapter, Nathan the prophet goes to David and tells him a powerful parable to to convict him of his sin in what he did before the Lord with Bathsheba. And David then composes Psalm 51 to confess the sin that he's been convicted of. So we see the importance of having good friends and people like Nathan in our lives who, who love us enough to point out ways in which we're, we're not living in a way that, that honors Jesus. And in verses 1 and 2, David desperately cries out to the Lord, and uses four different words or phrases to beg the Lord to forgive his sin. Have mercy on me, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, cleanse me. And there are three different words for David's problem in verses 1 and 2. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Some of you will have seen videos and, and read heart-wrenching stories of families being separated because of the war happening in Ukraine. Children leaving their mother's loving arms and being taken away to an unknown land. And their faces tell of the agony of, of leaving their families, arms outstretched, longing to be reunited with them. And those children's desperation is a picture of David's desperation as he cries out and begs the Lord to forgive his sin. And why is David like this? Why is he so eager to confess? Verse 3 gives the answer, beginning with 4. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It's our, our human nature to be eager to justify ourselves and defend ourselves as, as doing the right thing. I recently read the story of a tennis player who received a significant fine for, for swearing during a game and disrespecting the officials. Uh, and in the post-match interview, he was certain that he had done nothing wrong. But not so with David here in Psalm 51. David knows his sin. And this is not just him occasionally acknowledging the, the fact that he is a sinner. But the second line of verse 3, he says that his sin is ever before him. His conscience continually plagued him before he confessed. And he goes even deeper in, in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, on the one hand, that doesn't seem to be true. David sinned against Bathsheba by misusing his power as king to get her to sleep with him. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, by planning to get him killed in the battlefield. You can even see in, in verse 14 that David prays to be delivered from blood guiltiness. He knows he is guilty by sinning against Uriah. You could even say that David is guilty of sinning against all the people of Israel by setting an immoral example as their king. So you're left thinking, rather, is there anyone who David didn't sin against in all this? So what does David mean when he says to the Lord, against you only have I sinned? Well, it's the nature of our sin that with, with any sin we commit, 
including those against other people, the primary offense is against God himself. God is the most offended party in any sin. So that means that if, say, you were to lie to a family member or a work colleague, the primary offense is against God, who never lies and commands us to tell the truth. If we're bitter at someone else, the primary offense is against God, who commands us to forgive as he forgave us. The nature of our sin is that it is always, first and foremost, rebellion against God. And David goes on in verse 4 to say that God's judgment of him is entirely justified. David David agrees that the, the guilt is on him, not on God. And if God were to judge him, he would be entirely blameless in his words of judgment. And David isn't looking at this incident with Bathsheba and thinking, oh, sure, I, I messed up there, but... I've been a pretty decent king otherwise. Surely that will give me at least a a bit of credit with God. But he says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David points to the fact that he he is corrupt by nature ever since he was born. Even though, verse 6, God had mercifully taught him wisdom, in his heart. So here in verses 1 to 6, you have the why of confession in the Christian life. We are corrupted by sin to our innermost being. Sometimes you hear the phrase total depravity to describe that, not to mean that we are all as bad as we possibly could be, but that our indwelling sin corrupts every area of our lives, and we are guilty before God. And maybe you're hearing this and thinking, I get that. It it makes sense, but I I just don't feel that convicted of my sin. Maybe like like Harry in the story at the start, it's a a fairly matter-of-fact issue. Or maybe you're quick to think in a a fairly casual way, sure, it's fine. God God will forgive me. And of course, it's hard to just try by by sheer willpower to, to tell ourselves that we're terrible sinners. That cuts completely against our our human nature. Deep inside, we like to tell ourselves that we're reasonably good people. So how can we get to the stage that, like David, we long to confess our sin before the Lord in a heartfelt way? Well, we see that David deeply knew the, the character of God, what God is like, and it was through seeing the beauty of God's character that David saw just how far short he fell and longed to confess his sin. It's like when you've been in a a very dark room for a long time and suddenly the light comes on. It's almost painful in your eyes as you realize you've been used to the darkness for some time. And David sees the beauty of God's character in verse one. He says, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. When we consider and meditate on how how good and loving and kind and merciful and holy our glorious God is, the light goes on and we we see our our inner darkness and realize that we're not okay, that we're self-centered at our very core and we need help. Think of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne 
And the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the first thing Isaiah says is, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. Or think of Peter in Luke chapter 5. He had been fishing all night and not caught anything. Sounds quite like my fishing ability. And then Jesus comes along and tells Peter to put out his nets in the deep. And Peter then catches such a large number of fish, even the nets begin to break. And Peter is overwhelmed by how kind Jesus had been to him. And the first thing that Peter says is, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Or recently I read Psalm 66, a wonderful psalm that just sings of how good God has been to his people. And as you read it, you you cannot help but feel unworthy of God's love. When we read our Bibles with, with a keen eye to God's glorious character, we cannot help but realize that God is good and we are not. And then we will long to confess our sin in a heartfelt way like David. And the New Testament tells us that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's through Jesus Christ, his son, who bore our sins when he died on the cross. And if you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, it may be that one of the thoughts that you have about Christianity is that it's, it's for good people who have their lives pretty much all put together and may even be prone to look down upon others. Hopefully, what we've seen in this passage, Psalm 51, so far, shows that Christianity is, is the opposite of that. It's, it's for broken people who know how messed up they are before God and confess to God the ways in which they have failed and receive forgiveness through Jesus. And you can receive this forgiveness too if only you confess to God that you've lived for yourself and not for God. And if that's you, we would love to chat to you after the service and and explore that further. So there's the why of confession. Why should we make a habit of confessing our sin before the Lord? Verses 7 to 12 then teach us the, the what of confession. What happens when we confess our sin before the Lord? David says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In the Old Testament, if a leper had been healed of their leprosy, they would present themselves before a priest and the priest would take a bunch of hyssop, leaves of a particular plant, and with some water, sprinkle it over the person to, to symbolize that they they had been declared clean. So David is eager to receive assurance from God that he has been forgiven and be declared as forgiven as in God's sight. And not only is David eager to receive assurance of his forgiveness, but he cries out for joy. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David is feeling the, the grief and the weight of unconfessed sin. That's why he says in verse 8, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. It's no secret that our sin greatly weighs us down, especially the weight of unconfessed sin. I recently read the story of a man um, in 2018 who made a, a deathbed confession. 
that he was responsible for, for murders back in the 1960s, over 50 years previously. Evidently, his conscience had been burdened through all those years, and he felt he had to confess it just before he died. John Calvin says that for those who try to hide or suppress their sin, they may succeed for a time in hushing or evading the terrors of conscience, but they must ever be strangers to true inward comfort. Whether people know it or not, they are longing to know the joy of being forgiven and accepted by God. Now, some of you might be thinking at this stage, if I'm already a Christian and Jesus has forgiven all of my sins, do I need to keep on confessing my sins? What happens if I confess my sin as an already forgiven Christian? And it's a great question because we know especially from the Gospel of John that for believers in Jesus, Jesus says that he will never cast them out. It's not possible to lose your salvation because of something you have done. But what happens is that when David, as a, as a believer in God, confesses his sin, when you as a Christian confess your sin, you're being restored to joyful fellowship with God. And that's what confession is all about, being restored to joyful fellowship with God. Imagine a child with their father. If the child rebels against their father, they don't lose the status as a child of their father, but they can lose the, the joy and intimacy of being a child of their father. And this restoration to joyful fellowship with God can only happen by a divine miracle. When David says in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, the word behind create is used for something that only God can do. We confess our sin, but only God can restore our hearts and renew them such that we have a right spirit in us, verse 10. And what David asks for here is, is literally a firm or established spirit that is rid of the, the instability that he just experienced in his sin with Bathsheba. And when David prays in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, he's asking God to confirm to him that he's still a child of God. He's not saying that he could lose his salvation, but like the child who rebelled against their father and says sorry and asks, do you still love me? Similarly, David is eager to be assured of his father's love for him. What happens when you confess your sin? You're restored to joyful fellowship with God as Jesus Christ is more than willing to forgive you. Maybe you're someone who, as, as you're reading this psalm, um, you've become very aware of the, the burden you're carrying because of some unconfessed sin before the Lord. It may feel like, in verse 8, you feel like your, your bones are almost broken because of the weight of unconfessed sin. Maybe it's a habit that you've become used to over some time. Let me be speaking harshly to someone in your family or, or flatmate, or lying to your boss at work so they're not upset by the truth. And you know deep inside of you that, that it's wrong, and in some ways you, you feel the weight of it, 
but it's become a habit because you feel like it's, it's made your life that bit easier over time. Or perhaps it's something that you, you just feel too ashamed to bring before the Lord. Maybe watching pornography on a fairly frequent basis. Or maybe, like David, in, in this story, you become more and more attracted to someone who's, who's not your spouse. And the thought of an affair has become increasingly appealing. And as hard and as humbling as it is, that the very simple step that this psalm encourages us to take is to bring it before the Lord in confession and beg him to restore you to joyful fellowship with him. You may want to use the words of this psalm to confess your sin or the words of the, the tax collector's prayer. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the Pharisee is, is self-righteous before God, but the tax collector simply prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Unconfessed sin is like, like putting up a, a hoover dam before the Lord. And when you confess your sin, the dam is destroyed and God's grace floods into your life through Christ. And you can be restored to the joy of restored fellowship with God. Or maybe you're someone like, like Mary in the story at the start. And you're very aware of just how unworthy you are before the Lord. And you confess your sins on a regular basis. But you almost feel as though God's grace must have run out for you by now. You might feel like you've been struggling with the same sins over and over again. And not made a huge amount of growth. And God's just tired of it. You know that God is gracious and forgiving. But in reality, it feels like you're hanging on by a spider's thread with God, and you don't experience much joy in Him. We'll hear these wonderful words from John Owen, the 17th century Puritan. Show me the sinner who can spread out their sins to infinite dimensions, and I will show them this infinite and eternal reservoir of grace and mercy. How many millions of sins in every one of the elect, every sin sufficient to condemn them, has Christ's love overcome? What streams of grace, purging, pardoning, quickening, and helping flow from Christ's love every day. Imagine that you're, you're standing on a beach by the Pacific Ocean, and you get a cup of water out of the Pacific Ocean, and you look at the cup, and you're concerned there might not be any water left in the Pacific Ocean. Then you lift up your head, and see the horizon and how there is infinitely more water than you could ever imagine in the Pacific Ocean. And even beyond the horizon, the abundant water goes on and on and on. Your sin, no matter how deep or pervasive or frequent, can ever even come close to exhausting God's lavish grace. You're never hanging on by a spider's thread with God but he has an ocean of infinite and inexhaustible grace that he pours out on you through Christ. And he is always ready to restore you to joyful fellowship with him when you confess. 
That's the, the what of confession. Thirdly and finally, we come to the, the so what of confession, the, the results of confession, verses 13 to 19. And we can see in verse 13 that it starts with then, implying that this is what David will do as, as a result or a consequence of being restored to joyful fellowship with God. And there are three results in these verses. Firstly, in verse 13, evangelism. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The word for return in this verse is the same as restore in in verse 12. So David is saying that as one who has been returned to the joy of his salvation, he desires that other sinners return to God and experience the joy of his salvation. If you struggle in your motivation to evangelize, these verses offer a great motivation, tasting the joy of restored fellowship with God, and as a result, longing for unbelievers to taste of it too. I think of one of my friends who fits this description very well, and he's always looking for fresh ways to share the gospel with people. Even during lockdown, he was joining support groups on Zoom for people struggling with the pandemic eager to tell them about Jesus. You've probably heard the well-known saying that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And the second result of confession in verses 14 to 15 is praise. David says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness and my mouth will declare your praise. David knows that he himself deserves no credit whatsoever for being restored to joyful fellowship with God, but all the praise is due to God himself. And the Psalms as a whole are filled with examples of people who who feel helpless, whether because of suffering or their sin, and time and time again, the Lord restores them, and the Psalm ends in praise to God. And we as Christians are people who love to sing praise to Jesus, who alone deserves the credit for saving us, from our sins. The final result of confession in verses 16 to 19 is a desire for God to bless his people as a whole. David knows in verse 16 that God is not impressed with external shows of religion. Um, like the people of Israel were very guilty of when they, when they offered sacrifices externally to try and merit God's favor without confessing their sin. But David knows in verse 17 that what God truly values is not an external broken animal, but an internal broken spirit, characterized by a deep conviction that we really are nothing before the Lord, and we're completely indebted to Him for His mercy. And just as David, as an individual, was a broken but forgiven sinner, worshiping God. He turns communal in verses 18 and 19 and desires that Jerusalem as a whole be a place of broken but forgiven sinners worshiping God. Jerusalem was God's special dwelling place and Mount Zion in particular, where the temple was. And David prays for God to bless his people as a whole, that he would do good to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. Because verse 19, then it would be a place of of broken sinners offering right sacrifices 
in which the Lord delighted, and not sacrifices as a cover-up of a heart in love with its sin. And those sacrifices were a pointer to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And today, God's special dwelling place is, is no longer Jerusalem or Zion, but, but it's us, the people of God, both individually as the Holy Spirit dwells inside us and communally as the people of God. So Psalm 51 teaches us that if, if we as individuals are, are broken but forgiven sinners worshiping God, then we should desire for God to bless his people as a whole, that the church might be filled with broken but forgiven sinners worshiping God. As we come to a close, I'm, I'm deeply challenged by what it would be like for, for a local church to have a Psalm 51 culture. Think with me what it would be like if the people of a church knew and read and meditated on and prayed Psalm 51 to the extent that Psalm 51 was in the lifeblood of the church. It affected the church's culture, the church's values, the ministries of the church, and the interactions that everyone had together. A church that gladly welcomes sinners who confess, just as Jesus gladly welcomes sinners who confess. And what I say here, we have to remember that the sin has consequences. You only have to read the rest of Second Samuel after David's sin with Bathsheba to see that sin can have disastrous consequences. But, and a very important but, if our perfect holy God is willing to welcome David, the, the sexually immoral murderer, into his presence, that, that God's church should be a people who gladly welcome sinners who confess. I don't just mean newcomers, including non-Christians, but, but church members, people who attend church regularly, feeling able to confess their sin. Imagine a local church where that had a culture where when you went through the doors, you didn't feel you needed to act as though your life was all put together. But it was somewhat normal to, to confess and be open about our struggles with our sin. Imagine a local church where a married couple could confess their struggling in their marriage and they've not been loving each other well. Or a church where, where someone didn't feel they had to, to hide the fact they hadn't read their Bible in months, but they were willingly supported by others instead. Imagine a church where someone felt able to confess that, that they had an abortion and no one looked down upon them, but they were welcomed just as Jesus welcomes them when they confess. Imagine if the local church was the safest place for someone to confess that they'd been struggling with pornography, and they weren't put into a worse category of sinner than everyone else, but they received the help they needed instead. Or a church where if someone keeps on making the same mistakes and their Christian growth feels really slow, there is grace and more grace and more grace every time they talk about their struggle. Or imagine a church where what's most valued about someone is not their, their job or salary or amount of education or even their gifting, 
but their character, including a broken, humble spirit before the Lord. Imagine a church where where there's grace to fail, and the church gladly welcomes sinners who confess, just as Jesus gladly welcomes sinners who confess. I find this deeply challenging as I've wrestled with this psalm. Let's pray that our church would be a church like this with, with a Psalm 51 culture. Let's come before the Lord in prayer as we close before we sing our next song. Father, we thank you that through your son Jesus, you gladly welcome sinners who confess. Please help our church be a people who gladly welcome sinners who confess. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand to sing, I stand amazed in the presence.
please take a seat. And as we bring our service to a close, hear these words from the letter of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen.